Thank you for listening to Radio Maria, a Christian voice in your home. We are now continuing with Jesus, the promised Messiah of Judaism, with Roy Shulman. Hi, this is Roy Shulman, and welcome once again to Jesus, the promised Messiah of Judaism, the show on Radio Maria that celebrates the Jewish roots of the Catholic Church. And our seen the other way around, uh, that actually is the way I see it, that celebrates the completion, the fulfillment, the full realization of all of the potential, all of the promise of Judaism in the Catholic Church and her sacraments. Now, um, this, is a, this is a live show, uh, so I don't think I'm surprising anybody by saying that, uh, at least here in the United States, we're in very tumultuous times. And if this was a political show, I'd love to dive into the politics, but we're dealing with something far more important than the politics or even what happens on earth, which is where we're dealing with our eternity and we're dealing with trying to live our lives and look at the world in some sense through the eyes of God. Or another way one can think of it is we want to evaluate things, experience things and make decisions in exactly the same way that we will wish we had made them after we die and are looking back over our life in the presence of God. And perhaps um, uh, later in the show, I will um, go back and recount a little bit of my witness testimony of how I came to this realization. Uh, it's uh, part of my conversion story of how I turned from a atheist Jew to a very enthusiastic uh, believing Catholic. But for now, I don't want to go there. For now, what I want to do is simply do some speaking, but mostly reading about divine providence and the totality of divine providence, uh, because that's actually the context in which we should be seeing everything. And it's particularly relevant, the more difficult the time, the more challenging the experiences we go through, the more important it is to keep our eyes on the fact that everything that happens is divine providence, that God is in charge, that he knows what he's doing, and that everything he's doing is the best possible thing for us and for, as St. Paul says, all those who love God. So in order to do that, uh, what I will be doing is I will be reading from an excellent uh, book. I can't recommend it too strongly. I believe it's from the 18th century or so. Perhaps I can um, quickly see. Uh, originally published in uh, 1887, so it's from the late 19th century, and it is called Abandonment or Absolute Surrender to Divine Providence, and it's by a father, Jean-Pierre de Caussade, that's C-A-U-S-S-A-D-E. Now, I know I've read from this book before on the show, and I've also talked a lot about divine providence before on the show, so you don't need my blessing <laughs> to change the channel but you certainly have my blessing to change the channel because there may well be some uh, repetition between what I read today and what I read in the past. Um, and also in the same, along the same lines, uh, this is a live call-in show. And so if you wish to call with a comment or a question, you're more than welcome to do so. Um, I hope I will be able to figure out how to um, 
how to keep an eye on the uh, call screen. If not, I'll, I'll rely on the studio to let me know that I have a call. Um, anyway, so let me uh, begin with some reading um, from, uh, as I said, Abandonment to Divine Providence by Father Ducosad. The very first principle, very, very important. Nothing is done, nothing happens, either in the material or in the moral world, which God has not foreseen from all eternity and which he has not willed or at least permitted. God can will nothing, he can permit nothing, but in the view of the end he proposed to himself in creating the world, that is, in view of his glory and the glory of the man God, Jesus Christ, his only son. In other words, absolutely everything that God wills, it's not possible for him to will anything that does not serve the purpose for which he created the entire world. And what was that purpose? That purpose was his glory and the glory of the man God, Jesus Christ, his only son. Therefore, we know that first principle, nothing happens either in the material or moral world, which God has not foreseen from all eternity and which he has not either willed or at least permitted. And God can will nothing except things that serve the purpose for which he created the world, that is, his own glory and the glory of his, the man God, Jesus Christ, his son. Now, in order to bring that to us, there is a third principle that we should consider, which is that as long as man exists on earth, God desires to be glorified through the happiness, through the blessedness, through the holiness of this privileged creature. And therefore, in God's designs, the interest of man's sanctification, happiness, and blessedness is inseparable from the interest of divine glory. In other words, as long as man exists, God's glory is comes about in part through the holiness of man, through the sanctification of man, through the blessedness of man, through the happiness of man. And therefore, the sanctification, the blessedness, the happiness of man is part of the glory for which God created the world. And therefore, God always is going to have sight of that, will have that in sight in anything that he wills or permits. This means, of course, that there's never any reason to be worried or anxious about anything because God cannot logically allow anything to happen that doesn't serve this purpose of man's sanctification and blessedness and long-term happiness. I'm mixing my own commentary in, um, uh, so I'm not always making it clear where the quotation ends um, and where my uh, little exegesis or explication begins. Um, I hope that doesn't... Um, uh, I don't know how to put it. I hope it doesn't. I hope that's fine. I hope that that still um, is acceptable. Now, uh, I will continue with Duke Osad. If we do not lose sight of these principles, which no Christian can question, we shall understand that our confidence in the providence of our Father in heaven cannot be too great, too absolute, too childlike. If nothing but what he permits happens, and if he can permit nothing except 
that which is for our happiness and sanctification, then we have nothing to fear except for one thing. That one thing is not being sufficiently submissive to God. As long as we keep ourselves united with him and we walk after his designs, were all creatures to turn against us, they could not harm us. He who relies upon God becomes by this very reliance as powerful and invincible as God, and created powers can no, long, can no more prevail against him than against God himself. This confidence in the fatherly providence of God cannot evidently dispense us from doing all that is in our power to accomplish his designs. But having done all that depends upon our efforts, we will abandon ourselves completely to God for the rest. This abandonment should extend, in fact, to everything, to the past, to the present, to the future, to the body and all its conditions, to the soul and all its miseries, as well as all its qualities, to blessings, to afflictions, to the goodwill of men, and to their malice, to the vicissitudes of the material and the revolutions of the moral world, to life and to death, to time and eternity. This is, of course, I think only logical, as well as in some sense, only being Christianity 101. In order to be worried about anything or anxious about anything, we have to think it's outside of God's control or that God doesn't have our interests in heart, that God is not good, that God does not love us. It has to be one of those things, because if God is all powerful, if God loves us, if God is in control of everything, and if God is good, then anything that happens, by definition, has to be for our own good, and therefore not a source of any worry or anxiety. Um, again, as St. Paul said, all things work together for the good, for those who love God. Now, one could think that there is one um, in some sense, exception to this, I think that might be the case, which is that what St. Paul says is all things work to the good for those who love God. And tragically, there might in fact be some people who do not love God and um, who may not actually enter the blessed state upon death, but may actually be uh, condemned upon death. And I think that logically one has to acknowledge that there's a reason why St. Paul says all things work to the good for those who love God and not all things work to the good for all human beings. Because one has to leave a kind of a trapdoor open, a kind of a hatch open for the fact that the possibility, the very real possibility, one could say the probability, one could even say the certainty, depending on, on the refinement of one's theology, is that um, some souls may not be saved. And, and that produces a little bit of an exception to all things working for the good, because we don't want to be one of those souls. Anyway, uh, I don't want to get morbid. Let me continue with the good news, which is why there is never any reason to be anxious about anything. 
And that even includes what's going on in Washington, D.C. That even includes what our political future holds. That even includes the um, state of freedom that we will find ourselves in or the state of freedom that we will find the Catholic Church in uh, and so forth and so on. Since God, God's um, sovereignty is over everything and God's power is over everything, God's wisdom is over everything. You know, there's nothing in the shadows. There's nothing that's outside of divine providence. Now, just continuing. The divine action is everywhere and always present, although visible only to the eye of faith. Uh, this is a really important point, actually, even though it's just a subtitle, which is we have to work on having the eyes of faith. We have to work on maintaining our confidence in divine providence, surrendering to divine providence. There is a very beautiful novena. I believe it's called the Surrender Novena. Um, Dolindo, I believe. Uh, Father Dolindo, D-O-L-I-N-D-O. Being a novena, it's, of course, five, five prayers. And if you're not familiar with it, I cannot uh, recommend it too highly because it is a very, very beautiful, I believe it's revealed by Jesus, Father Jolindo, but in any case, it's a very beautiful sequence of prayers in order to remind oneself of the um, silliness of not surrendering to divine providence. And also, it's actually, there's another dimension to it, which is Jesus told St. Faustina in her diary that the only limit to the grace that he gives people is their lack of confidence in him. That's why underneath the uh, image of divine mercy was to be written, Jesus, I trust in you. The more we trust in Jesus, the more he's able to do for us. Anyway, back to Father de Cossat. All creatures are living in the hand of God. The senses perceive only the action of the creature but faith sees divine action in all things. Faith realizes that Jesus Christ lives in all things and works through all ages, that the least moment and the smallest atom contain a portion of this hidden life, this mysterious action. The instrumentality of creatures is a veil which covers the profound mysteries of the divine action. The apparition of Jesus to his apostles after his resurrection surprised them, he presented himself to them under forms which disguised him, and as soon as he manifested himself, he disappeared. This same Jesus, who is ever living and laboring for us, still surprises souls whose faith is not sufficiently lively to discern him. Now, this uh, paragraph introduces uh, a related issue. It's actually a component of this issue of divine providence which is one of the harder things to focus on, which is divine providence doesn't only extend to what comes to meet us from the natural world, so to speak. You know, whether it rains or whether it's sunny or whether we're sick or whether we're well or whether there's an earthquake or a tidal wave or not an earthquake or a tidal wave. Divine providence even extends to what other people around us do to us. I know that's very difficult to wrap one's mind around because that person has free will. 
And therefore, let's take an example. Let's say that you're walking down the street one night and somebody hits you over the head with a club and mugs you and robs you. Now, God did not want that person to sin. God did not want that person to be a mugger. The sin was not part of what God wanted. But the circumstance, from your perspective, from our perspective, the circumstance of that having happened to us was divine providence, was within God's ordaining or permissive will. In other words, that having happened to us is part of the all things that work together for the good of those who love God. If divine providence didn't extend to the free will actions of others, divine providence wouldn't be worth very much because let's face it, 99.9% of our trials in life, of our challenges in life, even of our pleasures in life, come from the hands of other people. And by definition, those people have free will. So, continuing. Um, uh, okay, I, 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 I think I'm still on the air. Um, continuing. There's no moment when God is not present with us under the appearance of some obligation or some duty. All that is affected within us, about us, and through us involves and hides his divine action. It is veritably present, though in an invisible manner, therefore we do not discern it, and only recognize its workings when it has ceased to act. Could we pierce the veil which obscures it, and were we vigilant and attentive, God would unceasingly reveal himself to us, and we would recognize his action in all that befell us. At every event we would exclaim, Dominus est, it is the Lord. That is a uh, reference to, I believe, what St. Mary Magdalene said when she recognized that the gardener was, in fact, Jesus, and after the resurrection. And we should feel each circumstance of our life in a special gift from him. We should regard creatures as feeble instruments in the hands of an all-powerful workman. We should easily recognize that we lack nothing and that God's watchful care supplied the needs of every moment. Had we faith, we should be grateful to all creatures, we should cherish them, and in our hearts thank them that in the hand of God they have been so serviceable to us and so favorable to the work of our perfection. If we lived an uninterrupted life of faith, we should be in continual communion with God. We should speak with him face to face. Just as air transmits our words, and thought, excuse me, just as the air transmits our words and thoughts, so would all that we are called to do and suffer transmit to us the words and thoughts of God. All that came to us would be but the embodiment of his word. It would be exteriorly manifested in all things. We should find everything holy and profitable. The glory of God makes this the state of the blessed in heaven, and faith would make it ours on earth. There would only be the difference of means. Faith is God's interpreter. Without its enlightenment, we understand nothing of the language of created things. It is writing and cipher in which we see nothing but confusion. 
It is a burning bush from the midst of which we little expect to hear God's voice. But faith reveals to us, as to Moses, the fire of divine charity burning in the midst of the bush. It gives the key to the ciphers and discovers to us in the midst of the confusion the wonders of the divine wisdom. Faith gives to the whole earth a heavenly aspect. Faith transports and raptures the heart and raises it above the things of this earth to converse with the blessed. Now, I, um, uh, needless to say, really needless to say, uh, I am not, I, I'm, I'm talking the talk, I'm not walking the walk. Uh, I know this is true, and um, I know it is something we should strive for and try to exercise. But um, it's not something that is easy to come to, and it is something that characterizes saints. Um, and therefore, for instance, I want to give uh, interrupt myself with a little illustration, which never ceases to astonish me, which is St. Maximilian Kolbe. I think many of you know who he was. He, he was a great saint of the uh, 20th century. He died at Auschwitz. He started the largest monastery, I believe, in Europe. It was in Poland, Nepokolonov. It had over 600 monks. He uh, started it from scratch, built it up from scratch. Uh, the Nazis invaded Poland, and at one point, they he returned to his monastery to find it smashed to the ground. Here, he had laboriously built up, it takes a lot of space to house 600 monks, and they also had a farm, they also had you know, a source of income, and they uh, printed the largest uh, newspaper, I believe, circulation periodical in Europe, and they had printing presses galore and so forth to do that. Um, and uh, um, and uh, he came back, and it was smashed to the ground by the Nazis. And he opens the door, essentially. He walks onto the property and sees the total destruction of everything that he had worked so hard, and so many other monks had worked so hard for a number of years. And what was his first comment? It wouldn't have happened if the Immaculata had not wanted it so. It wouldn't have happened if the Blessed Virgin Mary had not let it happen, if the Blessed Virgin Mary had not chosen to let it happen. So this may be beyond our reach, but it's not beyond human reach, so to speak. Um, it is something that characterizes the saints. And uh, so that's why de Crossade can say here, faith is God's interpreter. Without its enlightenment, we understand nothing of the language of what happens on earth. With faith, we see that everything that happens is in some sense God speaking to us. Uh, continuing with de Crossade, faith is the light of time. It alone grasps the truth without seeing it. It touches what it does not feel. It sees this world as though it existed not, beholding quite other things than those which are visible. It is the key of the treasure house, the key of the abyss, the key of the science of God. It is faith which shows the falseness of all creatures. Through it, God reveals and manifests himself in all things. By it, all things are made divine. It lifts the veil from created things 
and reveals the eternal truth. You're obviously listening to Jesus the Promised Messiah of Judaism. I'm Rainer Maria with me, Roy Shoman, your host. And today, because of the state of the world, which has uh, makes it a challenge not to feel any anxiety, perhaps, about the future, um, I am just trying to remind myself, as well as uh, all of you, that, in fact, nothing happens except with the will of God. And because he loves us, because he's good, because he's all-powerful, because he's all-wise, he doesn't allow anything to happen, which isn't actually the best thing that could happen for us. Now, sometimes when everything goes smoothly and comes out exactly the way we'd like, it's easy to think that way. Um, but the more difficult things get, the more of a challenge it is. And that's why it is sometimes, not, well, maybe not necessary, but advisable to remind ourselves of that fundamental truth. I will uh, interrupt my reading a little bit, perhaps, and say the following. Uh, I don't want to say put yourself in the position of God, but we really should worship God in everything that comes to us. Obviously, uh, religious people say a grace before or after, or both before and after a meal to thank God for the food that comes to them. Uh, parents uh, who are married couples who are blessed enough to have children, I'm sure, thank God for the child that they send them. And people who receive a good favor in life or, or uh, you know, a, a kind of a happy event in life, like a good job or, or a promotion or something like that, one might feel bursting out of one a kind of thanking God for his divine providence. Think of how beautiful it is if one is able to worship divine providence, not only in events which suit our tastes and suit our will, but in events which oppose our will and are not happy ones for us. Think of the weight of the worship of being able to say to God in misfortune that I acknowledge and I honor and I glorify your infinite power and your infinite wisdom which has sent me this trial. Just a thought. Um, anyway, continuing with de Cossade. All that our eyes behold is vanity and falsehood. In God alone lies the truth of all things. How far above our illusions are the designs of God? How is it that though continually reminded that all that passes in the world is but a shadow, a figure, a mystery of faith, we are guided by human feelings, by the natural sense of things, which after all is but an enigma. We foolishly fall into snares instead of lifting our eyes and rising to the principle, the source, the origin of all, where all things bear other names and other qualities, where all is supernatural, divine, sanctifying, where all is a part of the fullness of Jesus Christ, where everything forms a stone of the heavenly Jerusalem, where everything leads to this marvelous edifice and enters therein. We live by the things of sight and hearing, neglecting that light of faith which would safely guide us through the labyrinth of shadows and images through which we foolishly wander. 
He, on the contrary, who walks by faith, seeks but God alone, and all things from God. He lives in God, unheeding and rising above the figures of sense. Now, I will continue with de Cossade, but I will also interrupt myself for a moment to go back to what is perhaps the most difficult aspect of this theme, which is how we respond when what appears to be somebody's who's acting under free will uh, hurts us grievously, hurts somebody else grievously. Um, and as I said earlier, I believe that that is the hardest thing to accept as part of divine providence because we have that intermediary to be, uh, uh, human free will involved. Um, I, I, I would like to make the following reflection, which is that if we are terribly offended by somebody, if somebody hurts us terribly, it is very, very difficult, needless to say, not to be angry at them. And it's even very difficult not to hate them. And it even may be very difficult not to want to strike back or hurt them. Uh, and it may be very, very, very difficult to forgive them. However, we know that we don't have a choice. We have to forgive them. And how do we know that? We know that because Jesus really only gave one answer when his disciples asked, how should we pray? He really only dictated one prayer. And we know what that prayer is. That's why it's called the Lord's Prayer. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread as we forgive, excuse me, and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. The requirement to forgive those who trespass against us is not only there in black and white in the one prayer that Jesus gave us, but in fact, if you look at the entire Our Father, there is only one contract in that prayer. In other words, there are a number of petitions. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. May thy name be hallowed. May thy name be worshiped. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses. Up to there, they're all petitions, right? Each of those clauses is a petition. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Uh-oh, that's not a simple petition. It is an exchange. It is a conditional. It is a conditional. He is prepared to forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. If we're not willing to forgive those who trespass against us, it's not clear that he's willing to forgive us our trespasses against him. And if the words of the Our Father are a little bit too veiled or ambiguous for that to be clear, we have the parable, that beautiful parable that Jesus gave us, right? Of the servant who owed his master an enormous sum that he could never repay. Think of it as $500 million. And he fell on his knees and he begged his master to forgive him the debt. And 
the master forgave him the debt. And then as he was walking away, that servant passed another servant who owed him 50 bucks. And the other servant who owed him 50 bucks said, oh, please give me more time. I don't have the money to pay you back right now. And the first servant said, no, I, I won't. You better give me the money right now. And of course, when the master heard about it, he no longer forgave him the $500 million debt. And the message of this parable is very clear. We offend God a million times more than anyone could offend us because God is all good. <laughs> God is all good. He deserves absolutely everything. So any offense against God is much, much, much weightier than any offense against us could possibly be. The only thing we have to do to be forgiven this infinite debt, an infinite debt, by the way, which required the passion and death of Christ on the cross to be repaid, the only way we could possibly recompense God for having forgiven us our personal debt of sin is by forgiving others their debts to us. Now, as I said, this isn't very simple. This isn't easy. This doesn't come naturally. So there is a trick to it. And this trick comes from the Desert Fathers. And here is how it goes. Whenever anybody does something evil to us, we are really faced with, in some sense, two persons who are acting against us. We are dealing with the human being and we are dealing with the, let's say, demonic impulse in him, the demonic spirit in him, the evil spirit acting through him to attack us. Our response should be therefore twofold. To the human being who is allowing himself to be manipulated by the evil one, our response should be pity for such a stupid person who is endangering his own eternity, his own eternal salvation, by allowing himself to be motivated by the evil spirit. And if this sounds like too, you know, woo-woo, you know, the exorcist science fiction-y, it isn't. Uh, the spirit of anger comes from, it's the spirit of anger. Um, you know, the spirit of hatred, um, the spirit of envy, the spirit of lust. Certainly the Desert Fathers saw all of those influences as coming from, essentially, let's say, our bad angel. Uh, one could imagine that we have our guardian angel whispering to us, you know, to forgive, to be loving, to be kind, to be generous, and giving us good advice, by the way, because our guardian angel wants to see us in heaven. And we can imagine, I used to read Archie comic books when I was a small child, and they always had a little devil on one shoulder and a little angel on the other shoulder, you know, whispering in their ears in the, in the characters in the comic book. We can imagine a little devil on one of our shoulders whispering, you can't let him get away with that or no one's looking, you can shoplift that item or whatever. Because one feels those impulses jumping in on us. And the Desert Father certainly saw them as coming from evil spirits. So whenever anyone acts in a 
bad way towards us. There is the human person, for whom we should feel pity for them being such a sucker and so foolish as to allow themselves to be used by the evil spirits. And there is the evil spirit itself, who we should recognize is very clever and wants our fall, so wants us to react with anger or hatred or unforgiveness, because that is the entire point of the evil spirit inspiring that person to do it, right? Because the evil spirit wants the loss of the soul of that person and the loss of the soul of us also. And if we allow ourselves, it's like, it's like the sin is contagious. Everyone right, right now is walking around with a mask, right? To not catch COVID-19, you know, because people say that it's terribly, terribly contagious and it's very easy to catch the virus from somebody. Fine. But it's even easier to catch sin from somebody. Okay. Think of road rage. Somebody cuts you off and you get filled with this fury and you want to cut them off in, ex in exchange, right? You have caught the sin from that person. The virus, the virus of that anger has jumped from that person to you. Your mask didn't do you any good. Your cloth mask didn't do you any good, even if you were wearing it in your car, right, with the windows closed. So we should be very careful whenever anyone offends against us to separate out the human action and the human actor and simply have pity for them and therefore forgive them and the spiritual actor who we don't even have to forgive but we have to respond very cleverly and not fall into their trap because as, uh, this is actually quite a gift of god if you ask me because we have to forgive every other human being because they are not dead yet and we have to want them that we have to want their salvation because we know <laughs> If there's, if there's anything in the will of God, it's that all men be saved. So we have to forgive them because we have to want their salvation as God wants their salvation. But that is not true of the evil spirits. That is not true of Satan. We don't have to want their salvation because there's no hope for their salvation. That is theology that's beyond me. But Catholic dogma says that their will is fixed. And when they chose to sin, um, when they chose to fall, there is no possibility for their repentance, and therefore there's no possibility for their so-called salvation. So we are free to unleash our hatred, so to speak, against the evil spirits who want the damnation of mankind. That actually may make it a little bit easier for us to forgive all of the human individuals who offend against us because we do have someone we can vent our fury on, so to speak. And when you read the Psalms, if you read the Psalms about, um, you know, dashing their heads against the rock, dashing out their brains against the rock, I don't remember exactly the line in the Psalms, you might think that um, King David or, you know, the author of that particular Psalm didn't get it and had this horrible, you know, vicious, you know, anger, violence to him. But in fact, all of those images refer to the spiritual world and that it is that that, that, that uh, hatred should be reserved for the demons and for the chief of demons. 
So that was actually a very long uh, digression, but but um, you know, I, I obviously think a, a, a possibly useful one. And everything I preach, I'm preaching to myself. By the way, I think that's obvious. That is the greatest advantage <laughs> of preaching, so to speak, is that is that um, you know one one is actually telling oneself what one needs to hear. So uh, we're coming very close to the end of the show. So I, I'll, I'll uh, read another few minutes from this book. I'm reading Abandonment to Divine Providence by Father Jean-Pierre de Cossade. The soul enlightened by faith is far from judging of created things like those who measure them by their senses and ignore the inestimable treasure they contain. He who recognizes the king in disguise treats him very differently from him who, judging by appearances alone, fails to recognize his royalty. So the soul that sees the will of God in the smallest things, and in the most desolating and fatal events, receives all with equal joy, exultation, and respect. That which others fear and fly from with horror, she opens all her doors to receive with honor. The retinue is poor, the senses despise it, but the heart, under these humble appearances, discerns and does homage to the royal majesty. And the more this majesty abases itself, coming secretly with modest sweet, the deeper, the deeper is the love it inspires in the heart. So I think I'm going to probably end the reading there with that paragraph, maybe discussing that paragraph a little bit. I might end up um, ending the show a few minutes early, and if I do, please forgive me. But this is just so central and so important that so the soul that sees the will of God in the smallest things and in the most desolating and fatal events receives all with equal joy, exaltation, and respect. In other words, this is the ultimate goal. I'm, I'm not saying it's easy, and that's why we are given long lives. But we have really, really, really reached a pinnacle of faith. And if I dare say so, a pinnacle of holiness, if we can worship God for his divine providence, when we find out that we have cancer, as well as when we find out that we don't have cancer, when we lose our fortune, as well as when we win the lottery, then we have really learned how to worship God and how to honor him in his total sovereignty, total majesty, and total love. Um, okay, so uh, I've been, I, I mean, look, this is, this is basically... Um, in some senses, Christianity 101, um, even though one perhaps doesn't dwell on it enough, but I, I cheated. <laughs> I cheated um, because what brought me into the church, what brought me to believe in God was that I received a very extraordinary experience as an atheist, as a Jewish atheist, just walking alone in nature one day, extremely depressed. And from one moment to the next, I found myself in the presence of God, very knowingly in the presence of God, and seeing and understanding my life as I would see and understand it 
when I look back over my life from after death in the presence of God. So I received that extraordinary gift. I was an atheist at the time. I didn't even believe God existed. Of course, I had a belief that God existed when I found myself in his presence and, and, and was in the state of um, kind of uh, mental communion with him. Um, but I saw, I saw that uh, the two greatest things that I would regret after I died would be number one, all of the time and energy I had wasted, I should say the three greatest things. Number one, all of the time and energy I had wasted worrying about not being loved when every moment of my existence I was held in an ocean of love, greater than I ever imagined could exist, coming from this all-knowing, all-loving God. The second great regret I would have would be every hour I had wasted doing nothing of, the val nothing of value in the eyes of heaven, because I saw that everything we do on earth that has value in the eyes of heaven, we will be rewarded for, for all of eternity. And in my selfishness, in my mercantileness, you could say, I saw what a terrible, terrible, terrible waste it was to let an hour go by and not accumulate more golden treasure for heaven, essentially, for all eternity. We'll, we'll be enjoying that that little extra gold coin for all eternity. And the third great regret would be how much energy I had wasted, how foolish I had been to live in a state of anxiety. Uh, basically, I lived in a state of either regret or anxiety, regret for what happened in the past or anxiety about what would happen in the future. And both were totally nonsensical because absolutely everything that had happened had been the most perfect thing that could be arranged coming from the hands of an all-knowing, all-loving God, especially those things that had caused the most suffering at the time, that I had thought of as the greatest disasters at the time. And everything that would happen to me in the future would be the most perfect thing that could be arranged from an all-knowing, all-loving God. So there was never any reason to be anxious about anything or to... Um, say to oneself, oh, well, you know, that was a disaster. If only that happened, then things would be better. That both were equally foolish. Now, this was a kind of infused knowledge. This was a state of, I don't know what to call it, but uh, of infused faith, uh, spiritual awareness, whatever you want to call it, theophany. Um, and it faded and it went away. I have the memory of it. I don't have that state of consciousness. But it is essentially the content of faith. So we have to struggle when we're trapped in these bodies of clay. Um, it takes an effort to see things with the eyes of faith. But I hope today's show has been a little bit of a prod in that direction. And with that, I've come pretty much to the end of the hour. So I want to say thank you for listening. Thank you for bearing with me. You've been listening to Jesus, a Promised Messiah of Judaism on Radio Maria with me, your host, Roy Showman. And I hope you join us again next week, same place, same time. And it's time to say bye for now.